Good morning, Bluff. Some awkward pause here because we probably want the kids to be out of the room before I start this. Um, when I was a child, um, and by child I mean young adult, sadly, um, uh, there was a TV show that became popular, and uh, we we got my friend group. We got some many many ideas, none of which were good ideas from this TV show, um, but one of them was called antiquing. Uh, anybody know what antiquing is? Yeah, if you know the show, don't say it out loud. You know where you are. Um, but um, the, the idea of antiquing is you take, you take a handful of flour and you need to throw it as hard as you can straight in someone's face. Like, yeah, that's the kind of friends I had, you know? Um, but we, we had so much fun. The, and so the idea, um, I don't know why you're laughing, but uh, the thing was, like, don't fall asleep because it was, it was actually rare that we would antique each other while we were awake. It just became this thing where if you fell asleep, like if you were the first to fall asleep, you just knew you were getting antiqued. Um, so don't fall asleep. Um, probably low-key torture, but that happened. Um, but what was more amazing to me than the cruelty of just, like, absolutely rocking someone's world by throwing a handful of flour in their face was that sometimes people would actually sleep through that. I was like, I don't know how you could do that. But they did, and it was just so much worse when later, um, later you'd wake up after hours of sleeping with flour on your face and fluid from your eyes or your nose, or your mouth. Um, it's gross, but fluids come out of these holes on our face. And, and then you'd have like the flour mixing with the moisture and like these little dough balls and stuff, and it'd be all crinkly. It's just so much worse. Um, so you almost like, you feel bad. You'd antique somebody and they didn't wake up, and then you'd feel like, ah, oh, ah, oh, <laughs> it's worse. Um, but that's what we did. Uh, not really proud of it, but it, it happened. Um, but why is it called antiquing? Because you would transform someone's appearance to look like an antique dusted over. Um, but it was, it's transformative. Um, and that friend group, while we did really, really dumb things like that all the time, was actually incredibly transformative for me. Like the community that I experienced with that group of guys from high school into college was so transformative. It was so so formative for me. It just shaped who I am still to this day. Some of the things, the rhythms that we established. Like they say adolescence is the most formative season of your life. It's so important. Like while teenagers, you know, frontal cortex is not fully developed until roughly 26 years old. And yet the patterns you establish in adolescence largely stick with you through life, which is terrifying. But it's transformative. That group for me not just by way of pranks, but it shaped me. And so I want to ask you today, what are the things that are transforming you? What is shaping you? What is forming you? Because you are being shaped by something. What is transforming you? What are the things transforming you? Uh, we're continuing in our sermon series on the, the parables of Matthew, uh, the parables of Jesus recorded in Matthew. And we apologize, the screens, um, we're still kind of in this alternate mode um, while there's a set behind the curtains, but if they flicker, we apologize. There's not really anything we can do about that, but um, as we continue, we're looking today at Matthew chapter 13, just one verse, verse 33. So if you turn in your copy of scripture to Matthew chapter 13, we're going to look at yet another parable um, found in verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. The major point of this parable is the same as last week. It is actually a sister parable. It comes just on the coattails of the prior one, the, the mustard seed that we discussed last week. But this one makes the same point largely that the unassuming beginning of the kingdom of heaven does not mean that there will not be an impressive ending. 
that what starts off as unassuming, unexpected, will grow into something incredible. Flour, without leaven, is like this, like a tortilla. If you take flour and you let that flour become bread, you mix in the water and so forth, but you don't give it the leaven, or a, most often we would call it yeast, if you don't give the thing that's going to become the callus to, to rise, then it's like this, like flat bread. But if you take yeast and you dump it into the flour, then it does something amazing. As that water, uh, the warmth, and all the chemicals start to interact and everything, it becomes bread as we know it. So if you are like me and you don't know how that works, um, I'm going to read this because this is not my area of expertise, but this is how yeast or leaven works. Um, It starts with activation. So yeast needs a warm and moist environment to become active. It is often mixed with warm water. And next is the kneading process. That's kneading with a K. You knead or you combine the yeast with the flour. You, you put it together. Um, sometimes you'll actually go through this process of kneading it all together and then you punch it down and you repeat. I don't know, some of you bakers, it sounds like you just needed something to let some stress go. But combine it with the flour and then there's fermentation. As it's been mixed in, the yeast now feeds on the sugars in the flour, producing carbon dioxide gas and alcohol. Um, and then there's dough expansion, that as those gases are trapped, they rise and it creates this light and airy dough. That's what gives bread its characteristic texture of the airy and soft interior. The gas is stuck pushing outward. And then there's the alcohol evaporation period, and that's when it's baked. Um, the alcohol produced during fermentation evaporates during the baking process, and that leaves behind other byproducts of the fermentation process, and that's what gives bread that distinct flavor of bread. And so now you know this is how it works. And so Jesus, speaking into a culture where like every household would know this process, you don't just run to the grocery store or order it on your phone and pick it up or have it delivered, like you made bread. And so as you make your bread, you go through this laborious process that you have to get the supplies, put them together, work it through, and then wait for this all to transpire. And then you have your bread. So they would understand this. We don't as much, but I want you to understand the process of this so that you understand what Jesus is saying in this parable when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. A woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. What's amazing about this is when you consider how small the leaven is in comparison to the flour. Um, This is actually to ratio that typically you're going to have 1% of leaven or yeast for the total weight of flour that you have. So believe it or not, because of the weight of this, it's packed down quite a bit. There's 50 pounds of flour. I don't know if you heard Pastor Reggie when he helped me pick this up. Um, Someone might check on him. I don't know. (laughs) 50 pounds of flour in here and just half a pound, half a pound of yeast is all it would take to make this into a ton of bread. This small amount half a pound into 50 pounds of flour gets worked in and then works its way through all of that and transforms it all. And that's pretty incredible. And that's Jesus' point. That so it is with the kingdom of heaven. That this seeming small thing is going to do something amazing. It's going to affect everything. It may not look like it, but it's going to affect absolutely everything. That is the way of the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven, last week, we, we talked about this quite a bit, but to, to summarize, the kingdom of heaven is where we see the rule and reign of God. 
And namely, that's in us right now. That Jesus came preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In fact, it is already here. And now continues on as his rule and reign in his people and we advance and we take the gospel to all the nations and you see these glimpses of the kingdom of God that as it is in heaven, so it is to be on earth and we pray and long for that. But you see these windows where it's opened up and we see it realized here and now that the power of God is made manifest in our salvation primarily, that our souls are saved from an eternity cut off from God, but back into a loving relationship with him that he takes dead men and makes them alive. And now we live willingly under his rule and reign. But also in these beautiful ways, as we see the miraculous happen, as things happen that only God could do, that he will heal, that he will deliver, he will do all these amazing things by his power, and we see the kingdom of heaven breaking through. But it's in us. The kingdom of heaven is in us, the people who submit to his rule and reign. And so remember that tension of the kingdom of heaven is here, and it's already not yet. But one day it will be fully realized. And that's Jesus teaching on these parables. It may not look like it yet, but just know it is certain. The kingdom is here. And like leaven, it's going to ultimately affect everything. So the parable of the mustard seed, making largely the same point, is emphasizing the way of growth. That you have this mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds, and you plant it, and yet it becomes this tree that towers over all the garden plants. And so it's about growth. And this one, sister parable, largely the same idea. And yet this one is not just growth. This one is transformation. That the leaven, again, a small thing, and yet it transforms the whole. And so today as we look at transformation, we need to see that this parable illustrates not only the way that the kingdom of heaven arrives, but also how it operates. How the kingdom of heaven has come to us, but also how it is in us and it is changing us. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, um, many of you may have this memorized. I would encourage you to memorize it if you do not have it memorized. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. That's the beauty of the gospel. That you could not save yourself. I could not save myself. We were created good, and it is so important for us to start with that, that God, if we're going to understand who he is rightly, to understand the character of God, why we could ever trust him and know that this is truly good news, you have to start with realizing he created everything good. And what he created good, us at the pinnacle of that, his own creatures, but made in his image, humans, and the image of God he made us to reflect his glory, to subdue the earth, to take dominion, to rule and reign with him, and yet... We fall prey to the deception of the serpent. It says that we could be like God, not just made in the image of God, but we could be like God. And so our pride takes us into this great fall. And we fall from this loving, life-giving relationship with God himself. As sin enters the picture, we have rebelled against God. And whether you believe that historically happened or not, you know it is true in your own life. That in so many ways, every day we wake up and shake our fists I'll be my own God. I'll decide what is right and wrong. I'll live for me, the kingdom of me, not the kingdom of God. And if if you're not convinced of that with some simple self-reflection, I love the argument of the Apostle Paul in Romans when he says, think about the standards that you impose on all of your friends around you. How often do you think, like, man, I I wouldn't have done that. Like, you have this standard that you impose on others, and, like, do you even meet your own standard? We don't even meet our own standard. And so certainly we fall short of the glory of God, his standard. 
And so if we have this fractured relationship where we've been cut off, we've been kicked out of Eden, away from the tree of life, and so we have the separation, we're created for God, and yet the very one we were created for, we have been separated from. And rightly deserving condemnation, he says, but I love you. He's gracious, for by grace you were saved through faith. And so in grace, God says, yes, you are guilty. I made you good, but you are guilty. And in grace, I love you, and I'm going to make a way. I'm going to bring you back to myself. In fact, the way that that will happen is I will come to you. And so God the Son, Jesus, takes on human flesh, steps into his own creation as creator. Now the God-man, fully God and fully man. And he lives a sinless life. And there's been all of this sacrificial system that's been set up to say, hey, blood must be shed to make things right with God. And so all these people of God for generations have been killing animals and thinking like, man, like in the Passover, if the, if the animal could die in my place. And so we know that there is someone who must die in our place. Something must die in our place or we rightly go to that death. And God says, I will do that. I will take your place. I will die the death that you deserve. Being sinless, he is the ultimate, final, perfect sacrifice. The one that could cover for all of our sins because he is God himself. And so our rebellion, which is of cosmic proportions, what is the just consequence? It's a payment that we could never pay. Never. We could never repay the debt that we owe to God. But God, an infinite being, takes on human flesh and says, I'll pay it for you. And he goes to a cross and he dies. He dies preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he dies saying things like, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That it's grace, grace upon grace, that he is offering us everlasting life, saying, turn from your sin, repent, confess he is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because he died the death that we deserve, nailed to a cross, our sin, our just consequences poured out, the wrath of God poured out on God. He took that and put it to death. But on the third day, he rose back to life, having conquered both sin and death itself. And so we know with certainty that just as certain as Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. And we will live with him forevermore. This great thing called salvation given to us, nothing that we could do to earn it, none of our works, as the passage says. We can't boast, we can't brag. It's grace. It's what God has done for us. And we relish that. We celebrate that. We, we love that. Because we love him, the one who loves us. And when we see this great salvation, what he has brought about in our lives, that he has saved us, that the kingdom of heaven truly has come, then in response to that, we live a life of gratitude. Or as he says, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared for us to walk in. The God did not just save you, Christian, to say, hey, I got you out of hell. You're forgiven. This nice therapeutic language we love to throw around, and it's true, but it cannot stop at that. You were not saved just so that you would be made right with God. You were saved so that you could glorify God with your life, so that you could live for him, that he has prepared from eternity past. He has thought up ideas of the ways in which you are going to do things in this life that bring him glory. These good works you're his masterpiece. Who get to work making much of the creator. This is what the leaven does. That it starts as this thing and it's transforming the whole. That now we live this life. It's called in theological terms sanctification. 
that God has saved us. He has justified us. It is a legal declaration that you are justified. You are made right in the sight of God. This is atonement. You have been made one with God again, united with God in Christ. And yet, we now live this life where I still struggle in the flesh. Do you? Yes. And yet the promise of God is he won't leave you there. And you're going to live for his glory if you are his. And so we are conforming more and more to the image of the Son. That we are growing in holiness. But it's this progressive thing that we fight our sin. And if you don't fight your sin, it's fighting you and it will kill you. And so we fight it by the power of the Spirit. That the Spirit of God, His presence, Jesus' own presence in the Spirit has come to us. And He is living in us. He has sealed us with a promise for the day of redemption. But He's at work giving us these gifts so that we can help the church, so that we can advance His kingdom, and so that we can look more and more like the Son. Now, what glory is that? That this, this thing shows up. And it starts to work inside. And sometimes you don't see it. But it's going to work its way out. It's going to change everything. You were not saved to stay the same. I think one of the biggest things that this does for us as we consider this gospel, this good news, is that this parable illustrates a tension that we have lost a big view of God. Like I'm so convinced that the reason that we live our lives, like we come together for corporate worship and, and I'm not knocking big church or big conference or anything, but like someone sent me a video of this amazing experience that's being had where there are over 50,000 young people gathered together and, and they're singing their hearts out to God. And I remember being in those arenas. And I remember taking students when I was a youth pastor to these camps and you have these amazing events where everyone is so fired up and like, we're going to change the world. And then you come down from that mountain and life is the same. And it hits. You just, like, you live with that tension. I, I can be so cynical, so skeptical, but like, what is that? Like, did we really experience God and walk away unchanged? And Jesus says, no, no, no. Like, love him. Something's happening inside. It's going to work its way out. It may take time, but it's going to happen. But we've lost a big view of God. And I think, maybe soapbox for a minute, I think we have replaced him with experiences in so many ways. That so often we're not actually looking for God himself, we're looking for an experience of God. And yes, there, there's a way that, that you can look at that in an unhealthy way and try to detach them, but like, do you want God or just godly things? We want God. And we have to start with a huge view of God, that he is more glorious, he is more majestic, he is more worthy than any of us could imagine. He is huge. He's so big. When we see how big he is, it changes us. Because remember, rebellion, that you go back through that gospel story, that we were created good, but then we rebelled and we became guilty. In that rebellion, it diminished our view of God. I mean, the argument that convinced us, you will be like God. What? For us to think we could be like God, how much have we pulled him down in our view of him? We have diminished our view of God. But then grace hits us and reorients our lives to see the beauty of the Spirit, gives us a new heart that's regenerated. And we can feel with this heart. It's no longer a heart of stone, but it's a heart of flesh. Now I can feel, and my spiritual eyes that were blind now have sight, that Jesus gives me sight. And I open my eyes, and I see the grandeur of God. I see the beauty of God. And I can do nothing more than say yes. We see the love of God for us and it brings about a love for him. It reorients our eyes 
our views to see him again as big. But then we fight with that, that each day, come off the mountain, come out of the arena, and life hits. And we have to put our eyes back on God continually to see how big he is, to see this and grow continually in gratitude because as Paul said, the immeasurable riches of heaven are ours in Christ. And so if you will see that and you realize that more and more with every passing day, our view of God just keeps expanding like that leaven inside of all that flour. It just keeps growing and transforming everything. And so we see this on a massive scale across the world as God and his kingdom is coming to bear in his people and then advancing across the nations. And yet it's also true in our own personal lives that he's changing us. Because it really comes down to this. The kingdom of heaven affects everything. The kingdom of heaven affects everything. Jesus is telling you, it may seem small. It may even be hidden, but it's going to affect everything. The kingdom of heaven affects everything. And so when we think of the kingdom of heaven affecting everything, there's three kind of practical things I want for you to take away from this today. And both how it arrives and how it operates, you need to know these three things. Um, this is not exhaustive, but three things that just God put on my heart personally and I hope to share with you. But Number one, not all growth is visible. Not all growth in the kingdom of heaven is visible. The leaven starts hidden inside the flower. In fact, usually you'd kind of scoop out a hole and you dump it in there and then you just start to work around. But it's hidden. You take half a pound of something and you put it in 50 pounds and quickly you lose sight of it. It becomes hidden inside of it. Growth takes time and it's not always visually impressive. So we have to consider this when we see those we're trying to disciple or our own discipleship, that not all growth is visible. Too often we are far too concerned with outward behavior and appearance and we forget that the way of the kingdom is to transform from the inside out. And so at church, let's be a church with a lot of messy people. Like, we should not have it all together in here. And if we're honest, none of us have it together. But man, invite others in. Bring people over for dinner and talk to them about Jesus. Bring people over that make you super uncomfortable. I'm not telling you to put yourself or your family in danger. But man, who are we to think that everything should be nice and shiny? And Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he hung out with tax collectors, prostitutes. He was with grimy people. And that's all of us, right? I suppose as such were some of you, <laughs> but you were washed. And so let's be people who don't just look at the outward appearance, but know that the way of the kingdom of heaven is that it changes from the inside out, that one day we'll get there. But right now, it does not matter what someone looks like. What matters is on the inside. I love dessert. Let me just tell you, like, my wife, dessert's very important to us. Like, very important. If I don't have dessert on any said day, like, oh, sacrifice. <laughs> like, for real. Like, I feel it. And I go to bed thinking, I didn't have a milkshake. I didn't have dessert today. And I, I lament that, that loss. But you know what I also do? I think, man, it's a new leaf. <laughs> I'm getting so much healthier. And that next morning, I look in the mirror and I think, why has nothing changed? <laughs> why? Like, I've suffered all night and, and nothing has changed. 
because I think that it's supposed to be so visual. But I do know, like, and you know, if I were to continue not having milkshakes every night, it may not be visible at first because not all change is visible. But eventually, I'll see the results. That something is changing on the inside. A change is happening on the inside. Because not all growth is immediately visible. And that brings us to the second point. The growth of the kingdom is gradual, but it is certain. Growth in the kingdom is gradual, but certain. Uh, Philippians 1.6, Paul says, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Who started this? God did. Who's going to finish this? God is. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, thanks be to Christ Jesus, our Lord. God will finish this. And it may take time, but God will finish it. The growth of the kingdom is gradual, but certain. Uh, we, we live, uh, Pastor Reggie this week, I love the phrase he used, he said, we're the microwave generation. You know? um, Andy, Andy Crouch, he, he, he's a, a guy who, who did lots of research and writings, but he talks about the magic button. That if you think, if you lived like just a century ago, and you could have this button given to you that's magical. And you press a button and something instantly happens for you, like magic. What would you want? Like, ah, light in the dark. Uh, water, <laughs> like water on demand. Hot water on demand. Like all these things that, that's what we live in. Like we have the magic button, and yet we want more. Microwave generation, like, I want it now. Not, I don't want to have to work for it. Like, ship my bread to me because I don't want to do that. I don't want to wait for that. We live in this generation that wants this instant gratification, and yet sanctification is progressive. That you absolutely should long for moments of great healing and deliverance where God says, hey, that thing you're struggling with, it's done. We've put it to death, you're freed. And yet... As much as God absolutely can do that, and you should long for that, you should pray for that, we should pray for each other for that. And yet, you should also know the way of the kingdom is often low and slow, that it's over time. And so you keep fighting. I mean, last year, the most formative book for me in my own personal readings was Revelation. Just over and over and over to hear Jesus say, to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. So you're supposed to know about all these insane things and, and not be scared of it, but to know that the end is decided and what you need to do is persevere. Don't give up. You keep fighting. You live for the glory of God. The way of the kingdom is often progressive sanctification, that it happens over time, but it is certain. In this moment, we're addicted to the constant dopamine hits. Like the algorithms have us figured out better than any of our counselors. It's terrifying. Like they know how to give us that next like. Like we live for the likes, for the level up, for the enticing reel, the shocking YouTube short that you know is going to change your life, if not for the fact that it already played the next one and you already forgot it. But it's just, there's always more. And that's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is low and slow. It's like leaven, hidden and worked into 50 pounds of flour. But it affects the whole. It is transforming things. The king will satisfy us. When you live in the kingdom of God, you need to know that the king of this kingdom is who will satisfy us. And so run to him. Feast on him. And in a culture in a day and age 
where we are feasting constantly and yet we are continually famished. Do you know that Jesus truly satisfies? When you taste and see that the Lord is good. And yet, when you taste and see the Lord is good, if you're honest, and I want to be honest with you, there's so many days where I wake up and I pray and I read my Bible and I seek the Lord and I sit in quiet. And it's like, where are you? And you don't get that satisfaction. And I think he's doing so many things that I'd love to unpack with you in that. But then you have those moments where you're like, oh, it's so good and so worth waiting for. Because the way of the kingdom is often low and slow. But it's unassuming, and yet it will transform the whole. So conquer, overcome, press on, persevere, the way of the kingdom. He will keep his promises. Uh, my wife's favorite book last year was written by Kristen Weatherall, and I love this line she wrote in her book. She said, the unexpected blessing is that obedience both proves our faith and produces more faith. The unexpected blessing is that obedience both proves our faith and produces more faith. Like, maybe today you just need to say, what's my next step? If I'm to follow Jesus, like a rabbi saying, follow me, and so I'm supposed to literally be following after him in his way, what is just the next step? How do you put the next foot forward? What is it for you? Identify that and step into it. It could be a whole range of things. Maybe it starts with just a simple confession. that This is actually where I am. If I'm going to take that next step, I have to be honest about where I am, and so I confess to God, and I confess to brothers and sisters because in them praying for me, that's where I find healing. That's what James tells us. And maybe, maybe it's, it's a beautiful act of obedience like you need to be baptized. That you believe this gospel. You believe that God has saved you by sending his son to die for you and being raised back to life to forgive you of sins by taking your place. You believe that. You confess him to be Lord. You believe it in your heart that he died and he was raised from the dead. Then you need to profess that to the world through baptism. Do you identify with him and going under the water and coming out of the water? Say, I'm his and he is mine. I die with him in his death and I rise with him in his life. But what is your next step? Walk in obedience because the unexpected blessing is obedience both proves our faith and produces more faith. It's the growth of the kingdom is gradual, but it is certain. And my third, last point, discipleship. This sanctification, as we go through this together, is to walk or to apprentice under Jesus, to follow in the way of Jesus. Discipleship is life on life for life, and it affects all of life. We cannot think about discipleship as this hour and a half that I go to this place, this weird school, and they like try to change things, and man, I, hour and a half on Sunday mornings, and you walk away, come down from the mountain, walk out of the arena, and nothing has changed. No, discipleship, to truly follow after Jesus is life on life, us together continually, life on life for all of life, and it affects all of life. There's nothing hidden that will not be brought into light. The leaven that's hidden within will work its way through all of it and affect everything. The kingdom of heaven is such. Lifelong study of discipleship is necessary. I mean, especially when you consider how many other formative factors are pressing it onto us, trying to shape us into different things. Jesus also spoke of leaven um, in another way. He says, he says in Luke 12, um, he says, be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
the Pharisees were these people who looked like they had it all together. Really, really good at putting on a show. And they knew a lot of scripture. They knew a lot about God. And yet they totally missed it. The outside looked great, but the inside was so disgusting. And he says, they're leaven. Remember what leaven does? It spreads throughout and it forms things. Be cautious. Look out. Because they're leaven that wants to spread into you. You know what it is? Hypocrisy. That you would just do all of this in such a way that it looks great. But man, when you look inside, oh, so beware. Uh, one of my favorite sociology professors in my undergraduate, he used to just like every class, his mantra was never underestimate the power of a social situation. Never underestimate the power of a social situation. That when we get together and we are in an environment where there are other people, people will do things they never would have dreamed they would do. You never underestimate the power of a social situation because we affect each other. And so if discipleship is supposed to be life on life, for life, affecting all of life, who are you surrounded by? Who are you intentionally in relationship with to know that they are going to form you in the way of the kingdom and not in some other distortion? Who's in your life? Who gets to speak into your life and say, hey, that thing you're trying to hide, I know about it, you told me about it, let's talk about it. Are you in a home group? Next week, we're going to highlight home groups and you'll have an opportunity to actually join a home group. You need to be in a home group. If, if you're not in a home group, you need to know like the vision of beloved. Like we say, we say all the time, like, belong, be known, be loved. You will not get that on a Sunday morning. You need to be in a group of people who say, we covenant together, we love each other, we're going to push each other toward Jesus. We're going to open the word of God together. We're going to pray together. We're going to eat meals together. We're going to do life together. Because discipleship is life on life, for life, affecting all of life. Join a home group. Know that there are people who truly know you and love you, a place to belong. You need a discipline practicing partner. Like the, the rhythm of discipleship in our church, uh, one of the ways that we do this is every month we highlight a different discipline. And so we'll introduce that discipline. Um, we'll try to work it into some teachings. Um, if you're not in a discipline practicing partnership, you're missing out. That's where we, we try to take it from that home group model, which is like the, the intermediate spaces where there's, there's quite a few people, but then you bring it even more intimate. And you say, here's one or two people who I commit to weekly talking to, and we're going to practice the discipline of the month together. We're going to talk about it together. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to encourage each other. But they're going to form you in the way of the kingdom. Who are you with? Or if those are not something that you can do at the moment, join a ministry team. You wouldn't believe the amazing sense of community that can come from just serving together with someone. Show up here at 6.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning and hear the jokes that go between all the guys here. <laughs> you want to be a part of that. Maybe not this morning because it was 30-something degrees, but join a ministry team. Go serve with the kids. Have fun stories. If you won't believe what that kid said, we're not telling their mom. <laughs> like, <laughs> I heard a woo. Join a team and start serving. Take your home group and go volunteer with Dorcas Way. Go serve together. But be with people who are going to form you in the way of the kingdom. As the kingdom of heaven affects everything. When our king came to us in love and grace, and this changes everything. He's with us. He's in us by his spirit. And he's changing us. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who took leaven and worked it into 50 pounds of flour. 50 pounds with half a pound of yeast. 
becomes this amazing thing because it works from the inside out, changing everything. See it in your life. Uh, Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You know where the will of God is done? And his kingdom. As Jesus said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he brought the kingdom of God to earth. And it's here in us. And Paul says, hey, be transformed. Don't conform to this age, but be transformed, be changed. How? It's the renewing of your mind. The way that you see things the way that you perceive the world around you. Let it be changed by the gospel so that you would know what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, which is what we do in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Can you believe this good news? Will you share it? Will you share it? Will you share it? Because it affects everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this church. Uh, we are yours. And so would you use us in a mighty way that we may be like Levin, placed here as elect exiles in the midst of a world in rebellion. We would submit to you and your way. But then we would see things changed. And we know that that starts in us. Spirit, would you change us? to grow us in holiness, to make us look more and more like Jesus, convict us of sin, lead us into repentance and knowledge of what is true, and to see the glory of your Son who comes to us in grace and doesn't condemn us but says, I love you, and I've come to die for you, and we see that he did that historically. So Jesus, we praise you for that forevermore. You have the name exalted above all other names. Let this world know it and use us to make it known. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.